This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. History Colorado is the official guardian of the state's past, but the organization's own recent history has been fraught with change. The last few years have seen layoffs and cost-cutting, staff turnover, and a new approach to exhibits and audience. CPR's Anne-Maria Wad has been looking into History Colorado's evolution, and hi, Anne. Hi. Why don't we start with the event that precipitated all this change? Four years ago, state auditors took a hard look at History Colorado and didn't like what they found. That's right. Yeah, there was a lot of bad news in that audit. Essentially, they found a lot of financial mismanagement, and they found that History Colorado was pretty quickly spending down its reserves. There are a lot of factors that went into this. Um, one of the big ones is uh, that very shiny new building that opened in 2011 on D- Broadway. Yeah, right, downtown Denver. Right. So that has a very hefty mortgage bill every year, about a third of the organization's budget. Meanwhile, they've never really met the projections for all the new visitors it was supposed to bring in the door. Right. The new building was supposed to be this magnet that brought more people buying tickets. Exactly. So if you combine not bringing in enough money with spending down reserves, History Colorado was on track to go broke in a couple of years. What was the fallout from that 2014 audit? So it was pretty huge. You saw the leadership, the entire leadership of the organization step down. Um, There was a 20 percent staff reduction to bring the budget in line. So that was done through a lot of painful layoffs, early retirements, furloughs. The legislature also intervened to shrink their board and make them appointed by the governor. And so all of this happened in 2015 and 2016, and that's under the leadership of Steve Turner, who was originally brought in to be the interim director, and now he's the permanent director. So are they on better footing? Yes. Uh, last fiscal year was their first budget surplus in a long time. So it's uh, you could say that the worst is over. How have things changed in terms of what the public sees? I mean, is the museum putting on different kinds of shows now? So after a period of not really a lot of exhibits, um, you're starting to see a little bit more action at the museum. So last year, there were some newer ones. Uh, Backstory was a Western art exhibit that was a collaboration with the Denver Art Museum. Oh, yeah. They had like an artifact from History Colorado alongside some art from DAM. Exactly. Um, And then another one, Zoom In, which was the history of Colorado through 100 objects. Um, There's a pattern that you notice there. Those are cost savers. Those are using things that the the museum already has. Um, There are no more big, flashy traveling exhibits. The museum says they weren't getting a return on investment for those. That's surprising. You think those are the blockbusters. Right. Now they're trying to do as much in-house as possible. And there's also a, a, an increased focus on adult audiences. So later this year, you're going to see exhibits on beer and marijuana. Thoroughly Colorado issues. Yes. For sure. <laughs> a part of the history and the future, I suppose. You talked to History Colorado's executive director, Steve Turner. What did you hear from him about the change? A lot of enthusiasm. So we feel like we're moving in the right direction in the programming and in the uh, exhibits. And so we've got our financial house, we think, in order. We've got our programming and exhibits in order. I think we'll really begin to see all of this sort of new strategy kind of developing and coming into the full blossom, if you will, really starting probably this year or over the next uh, couple of years. And Maria Wad, what have the changes meant in terms of visitorship to History Colorado? I mean, are they getting enough people in the door of that you know, big museum on Broadway, or do they continue to struggle in that regard? So visitorship was stagnant for a while. And for the last couple of months, you're starting to see it sort of tick up a little bit. Um, like I said, those new exhibits, the new activity at the museum seems to be drawing people in. But it is going to be a long, hard road. The legislature even acknowledges that for the foreseeable future, 
Talk to me about History Colorado's funding. I mean, are there tax dollars at stake with this organization? Not typically. Most of their funding is going to come from limited gambling revenue. But that's been declining the last few years. Um, Along with, uh, there was a voter-approved ballot measure that sort of allocated a lot of that money elsewhere. So there's less in the bank for History Colorado. From 2003 to 2017, uh, the organization went without any general fund money. Um, That changed last year when the legislature chose to commit about $1.5 million over eight years to the community museums. And then this year, they got a tiny bit of relief from state IT fees. So all this kind of shows that they're operating on really thin margins. And again, lawmakers are happy with the financial turnaround, but they're also realistic about the fact that History Colorado is going to need more help from taxpayers for a little while. You also really looked behind the scenes at History Colorado, talking, as I understand it, to a lot of current and former employees. What did you hear from them about the museum's current approach to exhibits and to history in general? Like, Do they agree with that direction? So by and large, no. A lot of what I heard from former staffers is is pretty negative. Um, They say that for all the money issues History Colorado had before, they were still taking an innovative approach to exhibits and and they were doing good work. Um, They talked to me a lot about the meteor exhibits, like there was one a few years ago that tackled homelessness. Uh, A more permanent exhibit that was finished a few years ago uh, was about the history of the Chicano movement. They didn't necessarily always get it right. Uh, They got a lot of criticism a few years ago from Native American tribes about how they depicted the Sand Creek Massacre. But they're really proud of things uh, like one of those traveling exhibits uh, that focused on race. A lot of the programming they did around that one national recognition. There were community conversations, I remember, with young people. Exactly, exactly. And uh, a national organization said that that brought increased visitorship to the museum, changed ideas about what a museum could do, and really brought in more diverse people than had been to History Colorado in the past. It sounds like the formers don't necessarily think the new programming is as meaty. You could say that. I think that there's sort of a a philosophy change here from exhibits that are a little more tough and thorny to exhibits that are a little more light and fun. The American Association of State and Local History says a lot of History Colorado's peers around the country are doing sort of different things to maintain relevance, like reaching out to changing communities. The former staff feels as though History Colorado is not making as much of an effort to do that. Um, They also feel like in general, there's not enough input from the community. That desire to bring in more diverse audiences, they feel like that's fallen by the wayside. And also a lot of what I heard was concern over the loss of institutional knowledge. So you have staffers who have decades of experience leaving the place and they feel like they're being replaced by people who are far less qualified. Anyone willing to talk on tape about these views? Unfortunately, no. Um, The museum world is very small and a lot of these folks were very concerned for their careers. There are other signs that staff are not happy with the overall situation. Yes. Uh, Throughout the course of reporting this story, I got a list that the current staff is keeping of um, people who are leaving the organization. And it was kind of a long list. So because of that, we uh, made an open records request for History Colorado to give us numbers on their staff turnover. And what we found was since 2016, nearly half of the staff has turned over. Um, We also got a copy of their employee engagement survey. More than half of people surveyed said they didn't have confidence in the leadership. Um, They said they didn't have a clear idea of History Colorado's direction. And they also said they felt that the place was understaffed. And there's also some issues with Turner himself, the executive director. Um, I heard a lot about his temper, about the fact that he can be prone to outbursts. This is what I heard from former 
staffers, and they also told me they felt that he made the place sort of a toxic work atmosphere. And because of that, we made a request for his personnel file. His personnel file did have one complaint from an employee last summer who said that they didn't feel safe being alone in a room with Turner. What is Steve Turner, again, the executive director of History Colorado, have to say about all that? Because he's been talking to you. When it comes to the employee morale issues, he says he's uh, wanting to hold listening sessions to get feedback from employees. As far as the turnover goes, he says that that's a normal rate and he's not concerned by it. With that complaint, he did not want to talk about the specifics, um, but I did try to ask him about his temper. Are you aware of other incidents where you may have lost your temper and other people may have heard, other people may have felt threatened? No, I really can't speak to that sort of hearsay. I'm not aware of those instances, so I, I really can't speak to that. At least three former staffers that I've talked to have said that they have been on the receiving end of outbursts from you. Um, nothing to say about that? Uh, again, I need... Is that, is that something that you've heard before? No. And I've been, I have been managing folks uh, not only here for 10 years, but I was in uh, management positions prior to this. And um, no. And from everything you've been saying, it seems like Steve Turner is really the figure at the center of everything at History Colorado in recent years. I mean, from its financial recovery to its changing programming to its office culture. I think so, but I think it's important to remember that the board also plays a big role here. Um, a lot of the former staffers that I talked to felt like the, the role of the board significantly expanded and that they were doing a lot of work that is typically done by the staff. And a lot of that work is being done behind closed doors. So the staff really starts to feel disconnected from the decision-making process, at least from what I was told. Did your reporting give you any sense of where history Colorado goes next? It's tough to tell. Um, This is their busiest year of programming since that audit. So I think a lot of where they end up is going to depend on how this year shakes out. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. CPR's Anne-Maria Wad on the state of things at History Colorado. Her reporting continues at CPR.org. John Elway could barely get the words out. Four years ago this month, he announced that the Denver Broncos owner Pat Bolin was stepping down because of Alzheimer's disease. This place will uh, never be the same. I can say that, uh, at least from the inside out, it'll never be the same. Having worked for him for 30 years... It's uh, going to be very hard to not see him walk through those front doors every day. Well, just last week, the Broncos family received another blow. Annabelle Bolin, the wife of Denver Broncos owner Pat Bolin, announced Wednesday that she was recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Bolin made the announcement in a statement released by the Broncos in which he said, quote, I decided to make my diagnosis public right away in the hope that it continues to raise awareness for those battling Alzheimer's and their loved ones. And so the disease has struck both husband and wife. Well, today we're going to focus on a dimension of Alzheimer's that I frankly hadn't considered, and that's how police and other first responders need to be attuned to the disease. Jim Lorenz is a police chief in Wheat Ridge, and he was just honored for his work training first responders to deal with dementia patients. Welcome to the program, Chief. Thanks, Ryan. Good to meet you. Also with us is Jill Lorenz. She runs Summit Resilience Training, which helps families cope with Alzheimer's. She also hosts a radio program, Dementia Resilience. 
Jim and Jill are husband and wife, so this issue is something of a passion project for the couple. And Jill, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. So, Chief, when we were talking about police officers and first responders, I'm not sure that Alzheimer's care immediately comes to mind as a job function. How, how did you come to be involved with this? Well, you know, there's a... As police officers, we meet people at some, usually their la- their worst day in in many instances, and people with Alzheimer's can um, have occasions where they come into contact with the police, and we just saw a real need for police to be ready and understand what's going on there. Sometimes it can look like mental illness; it's not exactly the same, but the the symptoms can uh, can appear that way. So we want to teach officers how to how to deal with the situation. How did you get attuned to this issue? So my wife, Jill, her mother uh, had a type of dementia, and she became a caregiver. Um, In turn, I became sort of a caregiver also. Uh, She did a lot of study in uh, in Alzheimer's. She became a volunteer for the Alzheimer's Association. She ended up working for the Alzheimer's Association and now has her own company that that deals with dementia issues. So you were seeing this in your own family yeah, and sure. thought this is something that I should be aware of as a professional. What was that time like for the family? Do you remember? It was a really hard time. And I remember answering your first question to Jim, asking him, can you teach your police officers how to work with families when you come on domestic violence calls or you pull someone over in traffic because my worry was that uh, people with Alzheimer's would end up in jail and that's the last place we want them to be. And, and Why Jim, was that your worry? Well, because my mom would get in a car and drive away and pull into um, drive-throughs the wrong way. She got lost in the middle of the cornfields of Illinois a couple of times. Um, she would uh, she took off from the uh, Porter Hospital and uh, up a Downing Street and walked down into the, the street area. And she's from a small place in Illinois. And I thought, oh, my gosh, my mom's under my charge and I lost her on the streets of Denver. Are you kidding me? Wow. So, you know, having to call the police for help. So I just thought it would be important if our family needed that assistance. Others probably did, too. Is that a common aspect of dementia in general, this notion of, of wandering off? I mean, it's, it's something that I feel like I hear about a lot. Ninety percent of people with Alzheimer's type dementia will wander. What is that about? Is there any thought about why? They forget where they are. Short term memory. They look for someone and can't find them if they're alone in a room. Well, they must be somewhere around here. Let me go look. They'll go out the front door, back door, walk around the neighborhood trying to find them, things like that. Or get in a car and forget where they are or where they're driving. I imagine that after a while you developed safeguards, uh, perhaps hiding keys, something like that. Right. This kind of Disabling thing. the car. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, putting bells on doors, all types of things. Putting bells on doors so that mm-hmm. the family was alerted right. if she was moving. Right. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people um, have this issue of how do I take the car keys away um, in a dignified way for someone that has Alzheimer's and is still driving? And Jim and I had a lot of conversations around that. And that was one of the reasons you started working with your officers on how to alert uh, them when they pulled someone over to what kind of memory loss or cognitive impairment they might be having, right? Sure. So we we have some procedures that uh, we train officers to identify what might appear to be dementia. Um, What would that look like? Well, uh, let's say we we 
see a traffic violation, we stop a person and they seem to be confused. We'll ask them questions. Um, I can tell you the, the questions are, are usually something that everyone should know. What, what is the day of the week? Um, who's the president of the United States? Things of that nature. What we're looking for is the kind of reaction that a person really isn't understanding what you're talking about. So we'll, we'll, if I ask the question, uh, what's the day of the week, I'll, I'll usually see a person lean forward and say, what? Well, they, it's not that they didn't hear you. It's that they want it repeated again. It gives them more time to think. So I look for that reaction. And the answer is usually, I can tell you about 90% of the time, a person will answer. If they have dementia, they will answer. Uh, that's not important to me. Huh. Uh, um, I'm retired. I don't care what day it is. Now, it's interesting because I could imagine an officer without any training thinking that that was in some ways an act of aggression, right? Like you're testing my authority as an officer. Maybe that's part of what you have to get cops to be sensitive to. Yeah, some, sometimes that's true. And there's different types of dementia. Alzheimer's is the most common mm-hmm. type. And that's generally not as aggressive as other types. So you'll usually see someone that is is confused. And if they're pressed, then they, they can get angry. They, you know, if you continue to ask the same question over and over again, what we try to do is change up the questions and try to talk to them, try to understand where it is, um, what's going on with them. So how might that change the interaction f- from there? In other words, what would you do differently at that point? Well, we're, we're going to try to get a hold of a caregiver oh. if we can. We contact family members because um, obviously we don't want if, if a person is dangerous, we, we don't want them driving. They could hurt themselves. They could hurt someone else. So it's that's a bad thing. We want to try to get driver's licenses uh, suspended from people that aren't able to drive. So we'll issue a summons, and they'll have to go to court. The reason being we want um, – we, we want the entire family to understand what's going on here. We want opportunities for other people to talk to them, not just the police, but family members, maybe their doctor, a judge, a prosecutor. So this is also about letting officers know that there's a lot more to follow up on after that traffic right. stop. And presumably you've brought that person to custody. Uh, it's, it's not technically a custody. Like I said, we'll write a, a, a traffic ticket. Uh-huh. They'll have to appear in court. Uh, if that case gets dismissed, and you know we don't care about that, the idea is let's get them into the system so that we can find um, opportunities to help them. So, how typical is this kind of training for law enforcement? You've done it at Wheat Ridge. I think Denver has done it as well. Yeah, so I've I've trained the entire Denver Police Department. It's uh, more than seventeen hundred officers, which, as you can imagine, took a while. I would do one class a month for. I think we did three years to get all of Denver through, which is a big commitment for a police department, especially one that big. So I've done a, I've done a lot of uh, metro agencies, uh, counties, Jefferson County, uh, Adams, Arapahoe, Douglas. You would say that there is a growing awareness and a growing desire for this kind of training among law enforcement? Yeah, okay. absolutely. So, Jill, we mentioned that the Bolins, Pat and Annabelle, have both been diagnosed with right. Alzheimer's. Uh, I think you've worked with them. I've mm-hmm. been part of the Walk to End Alzheimer's. That's which correct. Annabelle mm-hmm. was very involved with. Uh, the 2018 walk will be held in September. Right. Is there a sense of how often both husband and wife contract the disease? Is, is that? I would say it's not normal. 
it's not um, something that happens and it's not prevalent in every family. Okay. The sad thing is when both parents have it, it raises the percentage for the children to have it that are under both parents. Uh, they are, Annabelle is a step-parent, for ex- an example, uh, to Beth. That's from Pat's first wife. So it lowers her percentage to have it. But any of the kids that they had together, it would lower their percentage of or uh, uh, raise their percentage of, of having the disease sometime in the future. Scary for families. Scary for families. I think what else is scary for families is that if one parent comes down with Alzheimer's, you think, well, at least we have the other parent to care for him or her. Right. And that when that uh, breaks down, that becomes incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I-, I wonder how often caregivers if their spouses die before the loved one they're caring for. Oh, my gosh. That percentage is very high. I want to say it's somewhere around 78% of caregivers will pass away just from the stress and the physical uh, processes and and um, damage it takes on their lives, just emotionally, physically, everything. You know, it's hard to caregive. It's very hard. It's difficult. I want to ask you about something that uh, you told us before we got on air. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this came from you, Jim, that families see what has been lost rather than what is still there. So what I, does that mean? I steal that line from Jill. That's one that she says <laughs> all the time that, you know, when you when a, a person loses their memory, you can't really think of something that would be more devastating. I mean, that's what we are. We are. A conglomeration of our memories, and if you use, if you lose that, then what family members see is that you're not yourself, or you're not the person that I've known all all of my life. But you want them to change that perspective to some extent. Yeah, I mean, what we try to say is let's focus on what is still there, what a person, uh, you know, what quality of life that we, that we can create for a person, uh, so that they can they can live their. Um, their years, you know, happy in a with a with a better quality of life. Will you give me more examples of how you are training officers? What else does it include? Well, we we work with um, uh, you know a, a lot of times with wandering. We'll see issues in driving. We see issues in uh, people that will call and report theft or intruders in their house. Because they don't recognize maybe family members or even themselves. They might look in a mirror and not recognize themselves. They may be frightened by that appearance of a person in their house. Oh, I and see. They will, and they they're will the call ones in. making the report. Sure. They'll, they'll call in and report an intruder. They may um, lose things, forget where they've put them. Often people with dementia will hide things. And then they don't remember where they've hidden them, and then they're they're missing. So they want to report burglary or theft, something like that. It, again, it occurs to me how if an officer is not attuned to this, how quickly it could escalate or get out of hand. I mean, if you've got someone reporting an intruder, and it turns out it was actually just a reflection of themselves, right. if if that's not properly interpreted by the officer, my, that could go wrong. Yeah, yeah, it, it can go very wrong, yeah. Some of the things that Jim works on that I'm really proud of him for and the reason why he won the award is you also assess the culpability of a person if, say, a domestic violence call has happened. Someone's called in, my loved one's throwing objects at me, uh, they took my cell phone. And in the state of Colorado, if it's a domestic violence, someone has to go to jail. 
And Jim has figured out a way to talk to the officers to assess the culpability of the person. Did they know what they were doing at the time? Are they actually responsible for their actions in this case? It's and it's kept question. and it's kept a lot of people out of jail that didn't need to be there that have Alzheimer's. What's well, next? Yeah, give me an example of that. Um, as Jill said, uh, domestic violence can certainly go both both ways with a, a person with Alzheimer's. They could be a victim mm-hmm. from their caregiver. Caregivers could get frustrated, commit some kind of a crime or assault on a the person they're caring for. And the other way, a person gets very frustrated and may lash out. Um, in general, they don't remember that just a, a few minutes later. That it's, a, it's just kind of an outburst. And uh, what we want to do is work with the district attorney's office and your, your own uh, police department policy to um, work with, um, you know, what is culpability? Does yeah. a person know what they have done? Are they really responsible for that? And I can understand that that would be a difficult decision if someone is hurt. Yeah. Is it possible, Jill, that it is law enforcement that winds up informing a family? that their loved one has dementia. Oh, absolutely. You know, in the early stages, especially um, in the vehicle process, when they pull someone over in a car, family members may think, wow, dad's been driving a little bit erratically or um, is aggressive in traffic. Mom seems to be getting lost, but they don't know how to approach their loved one to say, should you be driving? People forget that it's, uh, it's a privilege, not a right. And they don't know how to have that conversation about their loved one losing that uh, opportunity and that life uh, channel that they have had to always be independent. And so it may be that that forces the situation. Law enforcement gets involved. Absolutely. And at that point, the news might be broken. Mm-hmm. Thank you both for sharing this with us. Sure. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating dimension of this. Yeah. We heard from Jim Lorenz. He, Jim Lorenz, pardon me. He's a police chief in Wheat Ridge and recently won the inaugural Alzheimer's Hero Award from the Colorado chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. And his wife, Jill, runs Summit Resilience Training, which works with families dealing with the disease. She also hosts a radio show on the topic Saturdays on AM 1430. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Twenty-two-year-old Lacey Williams saw a need for a lifestyle and fashion magazine that takes a conservative approach. Williams is a political science major at CU Denver and founder of a publication called Expressions. She told my colleague Andrea Dukakis that as a young conservative woman, she says she often feels like a pariah. The most common thing I get when I start talking to people is, well, you're a bigot. You're a racist. And then they write me off and they don't want to talk to me. Um, It's become about the anti-Trump movement, uh, very pro-abortion, which I am absolutely not. I don't know. I think both sides were quite a bit polarized and nobody's really willing to listen. Nobody has respect for each other anymore. And both sides need to work on that for sure. So you feel that once folks know you're conservative, you're dismissed? Absolutely. 100 percent. You go to the airport. I'm at the airport a lot for different conferences. I travel. And um, I have different pins on my bag, and they're like, give me dirty looks, or, hi, how are you? Why'd you vote for Trump? I'm like, oh, 
okay. I'm just trying to get to L.A. (laughs) So you don't even feel that you're able to engage with people and have an intelligent conversation with them? I love to engage with people. I'm more than willing to listen, see where they're coming from, and then I like to kind of explain where I'm coming from. And when I do different things for expressions, I like we're not opposed to girls that are more liberal writing for us. It's leftists that I have a problem with. They don't want free speech. That's the issue I have. What do you think makes you a conservative? For me, my founding values, like I say in the front um, of the magazine, my favorite amendment is free speech. I like the fact that we can freely exchange ideas. And some people on the left, they're offended by everything. Let's ban hate speech. Let's ban this. But we need to realize if we're not going to offend them, we're not learning anything. This happens on college campuses. Another one of my founding principles as a conservative is limited government. I feel that um, smaller government as opposed to the federal government is going to do a lot more for the people in America than big government ever ever would. What about things like Medicare um, that provide health care to the elderly, for example? Right. And I mean, there is a place for big government. But we need to remember that government should not raise us from birth to death. It should give us suggestions, but private industry will help us far better than big government ever will. And government programs are meant to get a hand up, not a handout. And we need to remember that again, too. Republicans control both the U.S. House, the Senate, uh, and the Supreme Court is likely to grow more conservative in the upcoming year, not to mention President Trump's in the White House. Wouldn't this be prime time for conservative voices like yours to be heard versus ignored? I think right now we are slowly becoming more of the mainstream. But just because we hold every branch of government, the media is so far left, um, entertainment industry, they're who influence us. Yes, we do hold all the branches, but I don't agree with a lot of the leadership in the legislative branch. I'm not a huge fan of Mitch McConnell, and that's why nothing really has changed besides, you know, tax codes. For me, it's about term limits. I think there's kind of these old ideas that keep coming up, and the whole party, we are kind of split a little bit between this sort of new type of Republican and things are supposed to be done this way. So your magazine is called Expressions. On the cover is Antonia Okafor. She's an advocate for broad concealed carry laws. There's also a teaser for an interview with William Witt. He studied at UC Denver and is a conservative social media influencer. Why do you think there's a need for this lifestyle magazine with a conservative approach? There's just nobody really in the media and Glamour and Cosmo. And I've always grown up reading these magazines being like, oh, gosh, these girls are so beautiful. But then you find out their politics and you feel like you're like these girls, but they don't believe any of the same things you do. Like it's important to give girls like me, older gals, younger gals, that it's okay to be conservative. Antonia, she was great. I kind of came to her with this idea, and she's like, let's do it. I'm so excited. And then um, Will is kind of how I got into a lot of this conservative-type stuff. Like, he is a very motivated person, and he's driven a lot of different things to a new level. So they both inspire me greatly. Talk about the fashion part of the magazine. Okay, so fashion is one of those things. It's it's kind of hard to get people, A, to sponsor a magazine that's conservative. People are afraid. They're not sure. But we've actually started talking with Amy Robbins, and she has started a company called Alexo Athletica. 
And it's a concealed carry legging. It's pretty cool. She uh-huh. lives in Texas, so she's about the gun culture. So it's a legging where you can carry a gun. A gun, a taser, a knife, whatever you choose to do, whatever you're comfortable with, really. The difference between conservative and liberal fashion, there's not a huge difference. We still like Gucci and Dolce Gabbana and this and that. But um, the people that are writing the articles come from a conservative approach. So if you look a decade or two from now, what do you want to see in your government in Washington, D.C.? I would like to see people be able to have a stronger sense of freely thinking and exchanging ideas without getting in arguments and calling people such and such. It's not just on the left. It's not just on the right. That's a big thing. And then also, I would like to see term limits come in effect um, in the next 10 years. What do you think that would achieve? Term limits, it gets rid of these career politicians. They have their old ideas. No bills get passed. Nothing happens. You're 20 years old. Do you think (laughs) that, I guess, Generation Z which you are from, um, (laughs) do you think they are in a better position, your generation, to fix some of these things? What's crazy is, is Gen Z actually has the highest number of conservatives since baby boomers. So I think we definitely have the tools. I think that if we do it correctly, if we are freely exchanging ideas and willing to listen to people, then we could finally get on the same page again in politics where it's not so polarized. Lacey, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Lacey Williams is a student at CU Denver and editor-in-chief of Expressions, a new lifestyle magazine with a conservative approach. Kids in Silverton were studying diversity last spring when they found a stone marker in the town cemetery. It memorialized Chinese workers who were banned from burial in the cemetery and who were run out of town in 1902. The students were saddened by this ugly history and decided to do something about it. So they created a museum exhibit. Their teacher, Whitney Gaskell, spoke to Nathan Heffel. Whitney, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. The Chinese were exiled from Silverton 116 years ago, and this is a pretty dark part of Silverton's history. You know, it's not really kid-friendly. Why did this historic episode resonate so much with your young students? Um, Well, I think it resonated with them because students really actually like to learn about things that feel really relevant and important. I think it makes them, it honors their intelligence, and it makes them feel like they're doing something important. And We had studied Colorado history all semester, and we hadn't really shied away from some of the other darker chapters in Colorado's history. So they had a lot of chance to build up to that and work towards understanding some of these events. And they felt pretty passionately about um, moving forward and doing something about it. Well, let's hear from one of your students. This is Rylan Jaramillo. Did we feel sad that we treated people that way just because of the way they looked or sounded? Can you tell us a little bit about this history that you found in Silverton that these kids were so uh, drawn to? Yeah, so we do um, begin at the cemetery, and the marker really just, it's actually a bit mysterious. It just says that they were denied burial um, in the cemetery. It doesn't really give any background about what they did in Silverton for work or why they were denied burial. Chinese workers were actually excluded from the mines in Silverton. 
and they did service industry jobs. Like there was a laundry, there was even a restaurant that was boycotted. And some of these things escalated till, until the in 1902, as you mentioned, there was a mob that drove the remaining Chinese workers who had stayed through all of the boycotts and everything. It was, it was as you mentioned, very dark. They uh, used a lot of intimidation tactics. They tied ropes around their necks and marched them to the mouth of the canyon and pretty much told them to hike away and not return. And and it's my understanding that after that event, there really maybe some people filtered back in to just grab what they could. But really, after that, Silverton did not have um, a Chinese population at all, a Chinese American population. Now, when the students discovered what had happened to the Chinese Americans living or the, the Chinese living in Silverton, was that their kind of point of entry to this to this uh, curriculum? We spend a lot of time helping, trying to help students make personal connections to this. So we ask a lot of things like, how do you think it feels to move? Or how did it feel for you when you moved? Um, what are things you would have packed if you when you moved or if you had to move? We really tried to um, build empathy and give them chances to think about, well, how does this relate to me and my life today? And as part of these studies, you loaded your students into suburbans with their sleeping bags and notebooks, and you traveled a thousand miles around Colorado to get a firsthand look at other examples of historic discrimination. Can you tell us a few of the places your class visited and, and what they saw? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so we visited the Eastern Plains and Denver um, to get a sense of how, how the diversity of our state and some key sites for us. One was the Sand Creek Massacre, which is a really um, powerful testament to telling history from more than one perspective, because many of the firsthand accounts from that event mis misrepresented. So that was very powerful for the students. And they had an understanding of the idea that, wow, this the true history could have simply gone away or been erased. And they had a similar experience at Camp Amachi, which was the Japanese relocation center in Grenada during World War II. And that place, again, was very special for us because the Grenada High School has a program called the Amachi Preservation Society. And uh, that site was also basically just falling to ruins until a group of high schoolers with their teacher stepped up to preserve the site. They've opened a small museum. They've even had some of the barracks recreated so that that history can stay keep alive. And so they got to see that students could step up and be the ones making sure that history isn't forgotten. And that was really special for them. And one of the people you received help from on this project was a Chinese-American professor at the Center for Asian Studies at the University of Colorado, Professor William Wei. And he says he was really impressed by what your students were doing. Uh, it is, in fact, uh, uh, quite heartening that they did this. Because I, I think we would all agree uh, that the uh, future is in the hands of the young. And uh, the fact that they demonstrated an, a proactive approach uh, to the issue of diversity is indeed uh, heartening and, I think, in fact, heartwarming. And what about the parents? What, what are they thinking about this, taking their children all across the state and learning about this? <laughs> I think that that's very um, actually typical for Silverton School. We believe in something called field work, which means getting the students out of the classroom. It's not a field trip because we're working pretty hard the whole time. So that's a big part of our school culture already. But I think our parents were really thrilled with the depth of the project and really getting to see the students complete an action project when they return 
we when we opened our exhibit at the museum, I had parents saying that they'd never even gone to our museum in Silverton. It was their first night there, and they were so excited to be there. And they learned so much alongside with their students. So that was really special for me. And so you decided to focus on this Chinese history. You have that exhibit there. Uh, here's mm-hmm. Rylan Jaramillo again describing what went into that exhibit and, and which was her favorite part. We have a Chinese calling card, a teacup, a um, musical instrument. Um, I can't remember what it's called. And then we have a picture from the newspaper that sort of shows what it looks like. And then we also have a glass bottle. A glass bottle, a picture from a newspaper, a musical instrument. Uh, I understand thousands of people visit the Silverton History Museum each summer, so this exhibit is getting noticed, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I, I think last summer they had actually about 10,000 visitors. We have, we're very fortunate. We have a very great museum here in Silverton. And your kids are also bringing attention to the Chinese history of your town with a play and a garden, I understand? Yes. So... Um, the one of the exhibit that you're speaking about, the students, upon discovering that there really were no traces left of Chinese culture here, they had to write to the State Historical Society and request a donation of artifacts, which was granted, which was really special. But we wanted to really elevate this and think about, well, what were the opportunities that were lost? And we have more newspaper evidence that supports that uh, Chinese immigrants did a lot of gardening here, and Chinese crops actually grow really well at our high elevation. Uh, They were forced to garden about three miles out of town. We actually hiked all the way out there so the students could really feel what that exclusion and prejudice would feel like. We uh, planted a Chinese memorial garden, vegetable garden, in our school garden, which is right in the center of town with traditional Chinese vegetables that grow well here, and that also has an interpretive sign. And that's another way, very visible for visitors, to learn about this history and take it from just feeling sorry or sad about it to, again, that action piece, students doing something about it and really learning and taking the opportunity to learn from this culture, even though it's no longer here. And what were some of the vegetables that you planted? We planted bok choy, cabbages, carrots, radishes, turnips, snow peas, and they're all thriving. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll have some video clips of that garden planting, as well as some of the students' travels around the state on our website at CPR.org. How has the town reacted to what the kids have done? We've heard about the parents, but what about the rest of the town? I think people are just, people are really interested in history here. It's easy for history to come alive here because Silverton is such a historical community. So there are so many people here who are passionate about history and they're impressed with what the students have done. They uh, have a lot to say about, oh, I heard about this, or they add to things of like the lore of what's kind of been passed down. And so people have been really curious and really interested, especially with the garden, because gardening is something that's very difficult to do here. We have a couple of really great local gardeners. But learning that about these vegetables that grow well here has really interested people. And now that this this history has been discovered and your students have developed this exhibit and this garden and they've done all this research, what about the next batch of kids? How will you teach them about the history of Silverton in that way? Um, I really hope to let things be student-driven in my class. So we'd like to keep with this theme of it's our job to keep history alive And we need to step up and do our part. And there is so much history to discover here. So if we continue along with this 
same group of people for future classes. I think that would be great. I think there's still a lot more that we could do, or maybe they'll get interested in something else that they discover at the archives and we can go that direction. But I definitely want to keep my students involved in doing the real work of historians and bringing multiple perspectives and stories to light. Thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you. Whitney Gaskell teaches at the Silverton School. Her students delved into the history of discrimination in their town. Last summer was one of the deadliest on Colorado's tallest peaks. Nine people died. This summer, there's a goal to make sure climbers know what they're getting into beforehand. Here is CPR's health reporter, John Daly. Amos Whiting talks about safety on Colorado's most dangerous mountains, the Elk Range near Aspen. Our Elk Mountain Range. Which peak is this? Capital P. Whiting is owner and head guide of Aspen Expeditions. A couple dozen people listen at a Boulder brew pub as Whiting runs through some of the risks climbers face. Rotten rock, violent weather, shaky decision-making. Main message is the more you can learn and the more you can prepare, the less likely you are to get into trouble. Last season was treacherous on the state's 14ers, 14,000-foot peaks. Netherland resident Kate Iscardo is a fit 28-year-old who's climbed a number of 14ers. I mean, and I didn't even know about all of the fatalities that had occurred. In her time on the trails, she's seen some poor decision-making. And people are in blue jeans and in flip-flops. And I'm turning around because there are clouds coming in, and they're like, we're going to make it to the top. We drove here from Wyoming. At the U.S. Forest Service office in Carbondale, Ranger Karen Schroer looks at tight, jagged lines on a map that indicate extreme elevation changes. Five climbers who died last summer fell on Capitol Peak. But that's my understanding, is that they all, all five got off route um, at the knife's edge. Schroer says the elk range, which includes the iconic maroon bells, are magnificent but dangerous. In some cases, especially with Capitol Peak, when you get off route, you can die. Last year saw a record number of deaths and backcountry rescues in the elk range. In response, community leaders have created the Elk Range Mountain Safety Coalition. When they debated new safety measures, warning signs seemed obvious, but also too little too late. We strongly feel like by the time they reach the trailhead, they've already made their decisions. And we've found that very few people stop and listen or stop and read the trailhead signs. Many would-be climbers get their information on social media. I got you on video, bro. You gotta get pictures of me once you get across, so. Where it's easy to find selfie shots and GoPro video highlighting epic adventures. That includes adrenaline pumping scenes from Capitol's legendary knife edge. Lloyd Athern with the Colorado 14ers Initiative says what the videos can't capture is the extreme danger, the exposure, and just how easy it is to slip and cartwheel off a cliff on the 10 or so toughest 14ers. If you fall, you're going to fall not two or three feet, but you're going to fall 200, 300 feet and not survive. Athern says at least one climber who died on Capitol was attempting their very first 14er. They didn't seem to have a lot of mountaineering experience. The 14ers initiative is producing new online safety videos to counter some less than prudent information out there. The larger coalition is focused on education and training. Guide services are offering field clinics with sobering talk about risk assessment, rescues, and planning. YouTube is not your mentor. Your mentor needs to be somebody who has experience, who hopefully has already gone up the peak that you want to go up. That's Justin Hood, president of Mountain Rescue Aspen. 
Their headquarters is packed with tools that may save a life. Rescue vehicles, snowmobiles, radios, medical supplies. Uh, ropes and mountaineering gear. And Hood and Steve Cerati from Aspen Alpine Guides say people who want to climb in the Elks need to know. These aren't hikes, that this is mountaineering. Cerati's guide service will lead a client up a peak for a fee of several hundred dollars. But he says anyone attempting these peaks should do some serious training. And Cerati says they must be fit enough to spend 10 hours or more dealing with high altitude, intense sun, and possibly dehydration. This could be a really good day or a really bad day. This year, the message for climbers is be ready to turn back if weather, rock, or personal resolve gets dicey. Justin Hood from Mountain Rescue Aspen says the mountain will still be there. We don't want anybody to have any expectations that they're just going to get to the top just because they're trying it. Hood knows the road to the summit of the state's deadliest peaks is a cautionary trail that requires abilities not every climber has. I'm John Daly, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. If you ever miss us on air, we're a podcast. You can find Colorado Matters wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner and the show at Colorado Matters. This is CPR News.